0: This is the time, this is being filmed in March of 2015, and we are about to have our school play. Our school play this year is on George Washington Carver, who was the great scientist and saint, who did many agricultural innovations for the American South, and thus the farm implements, and the backdrop upon which they're going to project many great slides, so it's not as if we've changed our teaching. or shifted our gurus, but we use our sanctuary also for the children's production, and so it looks a little different. Okay. Just to explain. People looking at it will spend a lot of the time not listening to me, but trying to discern. Yes, indeed, that is an old farm implement behind me. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Where the ma- where Master used to be, <laughs> and is still, but really hidden. Okay. Do we have any questions or thoughts before we... Uh, could you give her the microphone, please? Uh, just a comment. I was listening to an older broadcast when you were talking about uh, not uh, trying to be free in this lifetime. Well, or I don't like you the way said. that sounds, but we you were having a discussion. It. We're having a discussion about the attitude one should have about whether or not this is going to be your last lifetime or not. Okay. Yes, much better. Vocabulary thank you. is everything. Okay. But I wanted to say that I find that very comforting for me because if I felt pushed to try to do that in this lifetime, that would be just awful. So thank you. Okay. You don't know what number it was, so I can't refer anybody back to it, but we had a long discussion, so I'm just going to leave those of you who are watching this on film in suspense. This is class number 61. You're going to have to look at a lot of them to find that discussion. Um, I had a very interesting, did I talk about comparisons in this class? Because I picked up this really interesting point from Swamiji. Um, everybody always says, don't compare yourself to ever, anyone on the spiritual path. It's a platitude, really. And, but, you know, everybody does. <laughs> but he had the most, Swami had the most interesting way of explaining it from a philosophical, metaphysical point of view about the, the uh, fallacy of comparison I love it because it's it's something that everybody struggles with. Every atom of creation is dowered with individuality. That is Master's fantastic phrase, isn't it? That every everything is distinct and physicists are doing all this amazing studies to just find out how really indiv- how every atom has a personality and seems to have a destiny of its own. And all the more so whatever this is that God made where he made all these individual jivas, and we're all out here. And I mean, it's so much fun. I'm looking at all of you, and you all look so different one from another. And I I know every one of you by name, and I don't have any trouble recognizing you. I mean, not even the slightest trouble. I can recognize you by your voices. If I was blind, I could probably recognize you by putting my hands on your face because you're all really distinct. And that's just the physical manifestation. That's not even that whoa, so complicated system of vrittis that you've got going on in there with all of those past life experiences and everybody's individual response to them and then the attempt to go to the next one. So every single human being, it's not merely like we're a little different from each other. We are absolutely, you know, irreconcilably individual. And so we take what I think of as a golf ball and a tricycle, and we put them next to each other. And we say, which is the better one? You know, which one is ahead of the other one? And it's not merely that it's unfruitful to do it. It it literally can't be done. Because what are you comparing? You know, where, where do the two utterly unique entities coincide enough that you can decide which is, you know, which is which? isn't that an interesting way to think about it? And it's just like whatever our whatever our destiny is, whatever our exact karma is, it's that's our karma. So Amaji commented once when uh, that study came out that said, let's see, a woman over the age of 35 is more likely to be killed by a terrorist than to get married again. <laughs> it actually came out. I think it was over the age of might have been over the age of 30, but that was the um instructions. Now there's been more terrorist attacks, so maybe you know, it's even worse. But it was, a, it was a huge hoo-ha in the public. It probably was a long time ago that that came up. But Swamiji's comment when everybody was freaking out about it, all the unmarried women over 35 were freaking out about it, Swami made this very simple statement. There's no such thing as statistics, he said. There's no such thing as probability. There is individual karma. Period you will be subject to your individual karma. You're not subject to the probability of it happening. It's either absolutely will or it absolutely won't because it's your destiny. It's, you know, it's the same thought. And because we spend a lot of time overcoming a sense of inadequacy or a sense of rebellion, we enter into the second stage of the soul's long journey, which is called the revolt, in which... We just don't want it to be happening the way it's happening, and we just desperately look for a way for it to be happening in another way, and we want to be more like so-and-so or less like whatever. There's the tricycle and the golf ball. You know, how do you, where do you find the point of comparison? And you know, that's also the celebration of the fact that God made me just the way I am, and I'm right on the path that I should be on. I mean, if we're not enjoying ourselves, that's a whole different question. But that has to do with there's just you're, you're neither in front or behind you just just is there's just a state of I mean that at least that was helpful to me I found that it helped fill out the platitude a little bit which is the same as saying well you know if somebody's gonna be liberated in this lifetime great if I'm gonna be liberated in this lifetime that's that's just really peachy but you know what I how can I live differently than I am I'm at the edge of my up the edge of my karmic potential and I'm just pushing it. (laughs) And whatever it is, that's it. And this is, you know, is full speed. (laughs) That's all there is to it. (laughs) Oh dear. There's this joke. I love this joke. There's a picture of a turtle and a snail is riding on the back of the turtle and the turtle's in motion and the snail says... adore that joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> okay, moving right along. So, we are now, we are now in class 61, which is really amazing. And we're on suture number 347. Beauty, grace, strength, and adamant, adamantine muscles constitute bodily perfection. Beauty, grace, strength, and adamantine muscles constitute bodily perfection. Interesting. At Akumbamela Mela, I saw Dio Harababa, aged 144 years, standing on a platform, vigorously throwing a variety of fruits to persons in the assembled crowd with all the vigor of a baseball pitcher, Swami writes. <laughs> Yogananda himself had extraordinary physical strength. One time at a lecture in Boston, he asked who in the audience would volunteer to keep him pressed to the wall. I mean, no wonder thousands of people came to his lectures. Here's this man in this amazing Bengali accent in his 20s, his 30s. I mean, he's a young man, long dark hair, these orange clothes, you know, like this. Who was going to press me against the wall? And he pulls people out of the audience to try to push this guy against the wall. I mean, amazing. What an entertaining story. Six burly policemen jumped up onto the lecture platform. Everyone present must have thought Yogananda would be bested. He asked them to keep his body pressed against the back wall. Are you ready, he asked. Picture the scene. You know, like this. Yeah, they grunted fiercely. He arched his back. He just arched his back so strongly that all six men tumbled into the orchestra pit. I can just imagine the uproar in the audience. And amazing. Another thing is highly probable. A yogi will retain his vigor and magnetism to the end of his life. Probable, he says, because of course they have different reasons. So, let me just find here. You know, I, there were several things about this that I really like. Bodily perfection, beauty, grace, strength, and powerful muscles. Very interesting. I remember Karuna tells this story, Karuna McDivitt, uh, who's now in the astral world and perhaps back in this world again, who knows, but he's off the, Karuna is off the planet. He tells about his first meeting with Swamiji, in which uh, his wife Shoshona dragged him there. And Karuna was going to sit in the back of the room, it was a program in Sacramento, and he was going to sit in the back of the room because he was really... He's Australian, and he was really unsure. Australians have what they call tall poppy syndrome, which is they don't like anybody to really stand out in the field. <laughs> That's how they put it. So, I mean, it's the opposite. They don't like people who assert leadership. It's an egalitarian sort of... So that their respect for authority isn't automatic. The penal colony heritage. So he's... You know he's not... Shoshona is totally keen on... You know, Swamiji and the whole thing, and he's got his doubts. He wants to sit in the back, and for some reason, the only two seats are in the front row. So he ends up in the front row, which where he doesn't want to be. Swami, it was I guess it was summer in Sacramento. Swami comes out wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Must have been a very informal gathering. And Karuna doesn't really tell you much too much about what Swami talks about, but Swami was a little bit more in his uh, portly phase, and so his shirt just kind of barely buttoned over. So is looking at this guy who looks a little out of shape to him in this Hawaiian shirt that doesn't quite button really well and nothing about it is really appealing to him very much. And then Swami just talks about how he hardly gets any exercise but he does the energi- energization exercises every day and his muscles are like steel. Come up and feel my muscles like this. And he made Karuna come up and feel his muscle. Karuna like the last thing he wanted to do was stand in front of the people and he sure didn't want to touch this guy. It was way like outside of his... But, you know, Swami's (laughs) compelled him to come up and touch his muscle. I mean, I can't... I mean, I don't know what Swami was doing. And Swami used the word muscles like steel. And Karuna said he touched Swami's muscle and he said steel didn't begin to describe it. He said it just... It was... Well, I don't know what the word adamantine means exactly hard, but he said it was just stone-like. It was just beyond. He said he never, it was just like nothing he'd ever touched in his life. And he said his mind just completely disconnected. And he really does, does not remember the rest of the evening. He just sort of staggered back to his chair in this kind of strange, I mean, just that physical touch of Swami had just completely shifted his consciousness. Isn't that something? But it was the powerful muscle, and, and it's just sort of like... even if There's just so many odd things. But even the concept that beauty and grace... I mean, these are the ideals for the human being. I find it interesting that Sri Teshwar says in Autobiography in the Resurrection chapter, most people in the astral world make a body in their mid-twenties. And Sri Teshwar chose to be older. But I stopped to think about that because... Um, When I first really noticed that, I was probably in my 50s. Now I'm in, you know, I'm I'm closer to the 70 number, although I'm not there yet. But I was at that stage in a woman's life when you're tempted to use earlier photographs. You know, (laughs) there's just this little point. I try to use photographs that are not more than a week old right now (laughs) because there's such a temptation (laughs) to use the early ones. But, uh, you know, just things begin to happen. And there's still this thought form, and I, I realized when I read that, yeah, it's like in your mid-twenties, that's the time when the whole thing works so well, when it's just like, it's, it's gone up as far as it's going to go, and hasn't started down the other sides yet. But it was interesting to me that that's, when you had your choice in the astral world, that's what you would pick. There's this, like, there must be some inherent, not merely societally prejudiced. That's what was interesting to me. Because if it was just cultural prejudice, that's one thing, but if it, that is in fact what you choose, I, it, anyway, it, it fascinated me, and I, I watched the the mindset, you know, of a, a woman as she passes through the the decades. Being myself, who's quite, you know, as they go, not so involved in it, but nonetheless, it still has effect. It still affected me. I'm going to use it in the past tense now because it's less so, but just that that losing that beauty and grace of youth. Fascinating. And so he puts it here that when you have power over it, you just maintain that, presumably. Although, you know, age is inevitable. Um, of course, you know, maintaining the body is a matter of yes. karma because very often the masters sacrifice their body to the karma of their disciples. And they, or they sacrifice it to their own karma, just use their own bodies to just Finish whatever karma they may have, so he doesn't say exact, He doesn't say health, you know. Do you see that or absence of disease even? But you know this strength, and so I think about Swami at the end of his life. He said, "You will." It's probable that you'll have vigor and magnetism. And Swami certainly had magnetism, and even though his body was just debilitated like anything, he was still so vigorous it was like he couldn't carry the body anywhere. He had to have, at the end, a person on either side of him if he hadn't had such you know, 24-hour attentive care of whatever kind he needed. He certainly would have been wheelchair-bound at the very least. But instead, people moved him. But as soon as he got from spot to spot, it was so interesting to watch. As soon as he didn't have to move his body anymore, it's like the vitality was the same, in fact, greater than any other time in his life. And his mental acuity, and it was, it was just, it was really astonishing to watch. And even in fact, the way his face looked. It just, he, he looked really old when he had to move because it just didn't respond. But he didn't, he looked ageless when, once it was settled again. It was fascinating to watch. So I, I sort of see this, what he's talking about here. So, any questions or comments on that? Yes. Maryland.
1: When you when you said in the beginning about um, every atom is endowed with individuality, dowered well, is the doward, word. No, he, indi-
0: he uses the word dowered.
1: Dowered, dowered with individuality. individuality. It's not a
0: word that I'm familiar with, except that's the quote.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I was just thinking, whatever whatever it is that holds every atom in our body together i mean that's quite a job if every if every atom is individual and so no matter no, no wonder it falls apart at the end
0: <laughs> but and it falls it falls apart when the uh, when the animating principle which is the soul is removed as long as the life force is present it stays together and as soon as the the life force goes away then they the magnetic pattern is the magnet, magnetic patterns held by the ego and the the soul That's why the body can look perfect but still be dead.
1: Well, what I was thinking is as we age, um, you know, we get tired.
0: Well, but see, it's so odd when you really think about it. uh, Medically speaking, I believe they say that the entire body is replaced every seven years or something like that. But we keep repeating the same pattern. You have a crippled leg and every seven years you change all the cells and you still have a crippled leg. You have a big nose and you keep making the big nose. You have a male pattern baldness and you keep repeating it because it's, it's imprinted um, in, the, in the egoic structure and the ego structure because of all the vrittis. I mean, I, I really don't know. Master actually explains it in various places but, and physicists explain it, but my little brain just goes on tilt. But that's the basic concept. And so the pattern, when the life force and when the life force comes in, and that sperm and ovum come together, it's got the picture, and it starts collecting what it needs to make that first little body, and it sets up the whole little structure. So the body will grow in a certain way: male, female, light skin, dark skin, you know, um, whole and functioning well, or injured in certain ways. It, it's just fascinating. It just goes around collecting atoms. I well that. I, I'm not scientifically minded enough to know if that's the right way to say it, but it's something like that, <laughs> something very similar to that. It just collects. Is that right? Does anybody else nod their head? It collects atoms essentially, gathers them in. I read somebody else. I can't talk about it. I, I know it as a you know as a feeling principle, you know. But that but that is essentially how it works. And then we let it go. You know. Then you die. And. Uh, uh, and then as soon as you did die, usually, I mean, Master didn't, but usually the pattern begins to break down. You know, bodies are not pretty really fast, because they just, the, the, what, what held them in place is gone, and the pattern just begins to disintegrate. The physical starts just going back to wherever it goes, except for Master or other uncorrupt saints, and then a fragment of something is left there, and enough of the pattern is held that it doesn't decay. Okay, we, did, we made a technical adjustment and we're hoping that we're not going to be going <laughs> anymore, all right? That's a scientific term, isn't it? <laughs> a technical term, I've been studying up on these things. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead, where, we, where were we?
2: Uh-huh. And on what I think is pretty close to one of the last photos of Swami was when the last time he was at Master's house there's that really beautiful picture. He's up in in the meditation room. Yeah, he's looking right at you. Yeah. And if you didn't know anything about him, when you you look at that picture, you have no idea he's that close to leaving this world. And it's just so vigorous and so full yeah, of life. That's exactly us. right.
0: Yeah. And that's what really counts. The rest of the body is just a pattern that's going to be over. He extended that body longer than he should have. I remember uh, Johnicky e. Davies' mom lived way longer than she thought she would. Then than her her daughter thought she would. And she said she was a South Dakota farm woman and she never gave up anything until it was really finished. <laughs> she could see her mother's frugality just coming in. I got this one and it's still working. <laughs> we're not going to give this body up yet. <laughs> it's amazing. I was thinking this is, just because we're talking about this, my aunt and uncle, my father's older brother, um, the last years of their life, after my father had died, they lived on the East Coast, and I somehow got involved with them. My friend, Seva, who's known me all my life, sort of said to me, where did you get these relatives? You never used to have them. (laughs) I just somehow, in the last 10 years of their life, I just somehow got engaged with them. I'm not quite sure how it began. They were always my relatives, but I I didn't have much. But anyway, I helped them. Toward the end, I went out and helped them move and various things but my aunt was 89 and my uncle was like 95 or something like that and he his mind was not sharp hers was absolutely clear but her body was tough i mean she was having a tough time with her body she had a really hard time with her lungs and and she was so determined to outlast him because she felt he needed her but she simply couldn't she just really couldn't she just couldn't make her body keep working and she finally gave up but she gave up and died within just like a couple of days I was just thinking about that, just thinking about her driving over here, that that she had really trouble breathing, and it was just that the relationship between the will and the life force, and she had so much trouble breathing, but she was not going to stop breathing until he did, basically. But then she just reached a point, and it just, she couldn't use her willpower to do it anymore. And as soon as she relaxed her will, just, you know, within two or three days maybe it was five days, but she just was gone just like that. And it, it's a dramatic example because it's the end of the life, but, well, it's going on all the time, isn't it? That's what I was thinking. All the time we're either using our will to make something happen or we're, being, or we're not. You know, we don't really have any idea how much power we have. You know, she had the power really to live or die up to it for a long time, way extended her life, just out of her devotion to her husband you know, 50, 60 years, whatever it was. She just... And then she finally just said, I'm so sorry, but I can't do it anymore. Turned out it was fine. I mean, he kind of had fun at the end with his caregiver and, you know, all that. But, you know, he just... He really... He he was much less impacted by it than she feared he might be. Yeah. I didn't mean that in a negative way. I just meant he was well taken care of and kind of sort of, you know, he didn't have her supervising him anymore. There was a kind of... There was a little bit of that. But truthfully, they were a wonderful couple and very devoted to each other. But it was a little cute to see it. There was just a little bit of, kind of, at 95, kicking up your heels. Although he couldn't lift his heels, but still. (laughs) Why am I? Life goes on. So, moving right along. 348. Samyama, on the power of sense perception, on its essential nature and on its correlation to egoic awareness, brings control over the senses to the extent of freeing sensory perception from dependent, dependence on the senses themselves. We talked about this earlier, about how the senses are vicarious and perception is possible directly. So there's no commentary. So then 349, from that samyama, samyama the body gains the power to move the body gains the power to move as quickly as thought you know that you know that's just in, instant bilocation i guess or multiple location or transporting yourself being who knows the body gains the power to move as, and this is samyama on the power of sense perception on its essential nature and on its correlation to egoic awareness and from that comes also the body gains the power to move as quickly as thought one gains the ability to function sensorially without recourse to the senses and complete mastery over primordial nature, prakriti. Someone who knew Yogananda when the master was a young man told the following story. You should have seen him on the tennis court. Every time the ball landed on his side and no matter how difficult the shot, he was there. I almost wondered if he wasn't using spiritual power to accomplish that feat. I myself cannot imagine my guru using spiritual power in a mere game, but who knows, he might have indulged it one time on a mere whim, or more likely, he may have had some recondite reason for doing so, perhaps, to help someone. They also told the story of how very, very fast Master could run. Sananda talked about, you know, as a boy, he would be a block ahead of the competition. It's like, where was that? Was that really just being so finely attuned to his physical force? Or as Swami said, was he really doing something else? Um, What I was thinking... Oh, I, I had an interesting thought about that. You can create action in the material world without recourse to material means. That's what this is really saying. Because if you can move the body as fast as thought, you're not really acting in the physical world. You're acting in the world of vibration, but you're affecting the physical world. And in the same way that if you can have sensory perception without having to use the senses, you're participating in this world, but not by physical means. You're going back a step from that. Now, I'm going to tie that to something which, you know, is a little bit, but not so, really. Swami's material success course. And I think we, we've been talking about it at different times. And I believe I shared in here, forgive me, I always get this problem, I don't know what I said when... But when I had to write some publicity over the material success course, and I, uh, the thought that came to me uh, when, when Swami was asked, why is, why is your course different than the others? Why is your course, material success course different from all the others out there? Swami answered, I am the disciple of a great master. Which was a very intuitive answer to a very simple question. Of course, they expected him to say something completely else. But he went right to the actual difference. And so from that, I traced out this idea that for promoting the course, most courses on material success essentially tell you how to influence the material world from the material level. This course tells you how to have mastery over the material world by gaining mastery on a spiritual level. And then once you have that power, then you can direct it any direction that you want to direct. Plus, you can then also make your experience of the material world consistent with your spiritual reality rather than have the two of them either be unconnected or are in conflict with each other. And, you know, the the most subtle also gets brought down into a less subtle reality. And, of course, when you go through that course, which some of us have, at great length. You know, it's all about adjusting thought, energy, vibration, magnetism, and then directing it toward a specific goal. I mean, the most refined level of that is exactly what's described here, that you can just move physical things without there being any intervening drag on in the physical plane. Just by thought, it re-manifests somewhere else. I don't know what that means. He doesn't say you dissolve it and remanifest it. He says you move it as fast as thought. Fascinating though, isn't it? And the idea of Master playing tennis is just really charming, isn't it? I mean, it's so fun to remember that he was young. Part of our you know, impression of Master is that we have so much of the impression of Master both through Swami's stories, but I also realize that we, I, I feel like we see him through Swami's mind, and Swami didn't see him until the last years of his life. So the, 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 the picture of, Swami, of Master that we often get is the one that he's giving us and he's done his best to tell us many stories and of course there's photos and now there's even film you can see that the, you know he had a he had a lifespan and he was different at different times you knew it's fascinating so the idea of him playing tennis is not part of could you pass that over not part of what swami ever saw
2: <laughs> when we hear uh, the sounds the subtle sounds uh-huh are we perceiving without using the sense organs
0: yes that would be interior yes you are not hearing it outside you're hearing it it is
2: not so remote
0: very good that's not so remote precisely and when you see the light you're not your eyes are closed you're not seeing with your physical eyes i don't know if anyone ever hears gets divine fragrances or you know or divine tastes but they would all come yeah of course no it isn't so remote well said okay You, um, Chandra has a point behind you.
1: Moving moving through time. Um, th- this seems kind of related to me. Maybe it's not. But I, but I notice when I'm meditating, time goes a lot faster than when like when I'm sleeping. Sometimes I wake up and I think, oh God, only an hour's gone by. But you know, when I meditate, it just if I'm really meditating. Time just goes by so fast.
0: I think the answer to that is thank you, Lord. Okay, go on. <laughs> Many people are going to say they have the opposite experience, but go right ahead. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: So it seems like somehow um, it, it somehow it's related to, to what you were saying about moving through the material oh, world. You're, yeah. I'm, I'm moving there's, a
0: whole, there's a whole lesson in the material success course called timelessness in the workplace or something like that. No, but he, he, Swami makes a big point about time is a very, very mutable reality, and don't feel, do not feel when you're working towards your own successful manifestation that time is any fixed entity. It's completely responsive to the energy that you're putting out. Swami himself often says one of the reasons why he's able to do so much is he, because he meditates, he just has a wholly different relationship to time. And uh, I mean... I've experienced it. Uh, Vannamali Devi, I've mentioned that, introduced us to the concept of Krishna time. That's what she called it. When you don't really have time to finish something, but you know that you have to do it, you just turn the clocks to the wall and you shift over to Krishna time. In which, whatever, it just, it's partly uh, when Krishna held the sun in the sky, when Arjuna had made the vow that he would kill the certain warrior by, before the sun went down. And if he didn't, he promised to kill himself. And he, it looked like he wasn't going to make it. So Krishna brought in a cloud and it went dark and everyone thought the sun had gone down and the opposite warriors put their armaments down. And at that moment, Krishna said to Arjuna, strike now. And it was, the, the, the opponent was not expecting the attack. So it was really not honorable. But, so, so Arjuna went to kill him and did at which point, Krishna removed the cloud and showed that he'd held the sun in the sky. And so then the sky, then it went down because otherwise Arjuna wouldn't have succeeded. And Krishna was excoriated for this adharmic act. Krishna's response was, it's the beginning of Kali And darkness is ascending and it just other measures are required. But that's partly where the Krishna time comes from. Krishna will just hold the sun in the sky because it has to be done. So you can rely on him to just hold the sun in the sky and just give you as much time as you need until you're able to finish. But I've actually realized it's a, real, it's a very real thing. If it has to be done and there's no time to do it, you just stop worrying and start working and somehow it works. I was with Dharmadas. Dharmadas is one of the coolest cucumbers I know. <laughs> we, were having, we were leaving on a... He was leaving with Swamiji on this journey... We were in India, and he had to finish this book so that he could go to the printer. And, you know, we, were, we had to work all night to get it all, get the, the disc in order, to write the back cover, to do all this design. None of the machinery worked, the computers didn't work, nothing matched like this. He, he just was totally relaxed, completely. We finished, he finished about a minute before he had to pick up his suitcase and walk out. But he just was completely, the whole time, You know, every so often I'm looking at the clock like this, He just, you know, things are breaking down, nothing. Just, boom, just absolute confidence. It was a big lesson. He just knew it had to work, so it would work. That was all there was to it. <laughs> Did you have a comment? Pass the microphone back over. No, it, it doesn't go on the recording and it's confusing for everyone. Mm-hmm
3: at that, I was looking at the sentence that says, the body gains the power to move as quickly as thought. That seems to me to be the way the, the uh, Sri Teshwar or, or Lahiri would show up somewhere yeah. else.
0: Well, this is confusing to me. Were they actually moving their physical body? Because sometimes there were two bodies. Right. Yeah, but and then that's what I, how I first read it. That, you know, I'm here in Calcutta and then all of a sudden I'm there in Varanasi. That just as quickly as thought, they were somewhere else. But I can't say for sure, but that's how it looked to me. Yeah, or he's standing there. Well, you know, Jesus did that sometimes, they said. He would just be standing there and then he'd be standing there. Sometimes when the crowds were after him, this is how one of the visionaries described it. The crowds would be after him and he would either disappear (laughs) or... um, he would just be somewhere else. They were they were looking for him and there he was somewhere else. Well, the Hari Mahashayas up in the, well he disappeared actually then he remanifested on the ceiling. There's lots of nuances here, aren't there? There's
3: actually a whole series of books on that.
0: On how uh, to do that?
3: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, hold the mic. There's a whole series of books on on Transport, transporting the body like that, and a lot of it is about Jesus's stories. And right. I forget That's the name a whole of it other right approach now. where
0: one yeah. goes. Patanjali has a lot to say about that, about deliberately trying to learn how to do these things. I, I don't get the impression he favors it all that much. Yeah. Rather that these are side effects, rather than. But yeah, of course, people pick that up all the time and try to teach you how to do that. You can develop powers. You can develop powers directly, or you can have them appear spontaneously because of your purification of your consciousness to realize God. Well, and I suppose unless I was a master, I don't see any need for me to do that. You know, but people, well, no, but people go, it's, it's a path people follow. I mean, to, we need to comment on it now that you brought it up. People develop psychic abilities. And you can go and develop psychic abilities. And many people start on their consciousness expansion journey by being attracted to developing some kind of a power, like learning how to transport yourself. Now, this is a a lot of what we were talking about last week. You know, um, is that really what I want? Or do I really want to be in bliss all the time? You know, do I really want to spend all this time learning to do something where, yeah, so it's, yes, but you can, but no, it's not. But people start where they start, and they learn as they go. And so you just kind of...
3: I the thing is that the ability to function sensor- sensorially
0: without recourse to the senses. Well, it's the whole thing. It's all of it. It's just transforming. I found it to move the body as quickly as thought was the most fascinating part to me of that one. But all of it just says the body's no longer an obstacle. We're just living outside of it. We're living in the spirit world, which I think is a real good idea. I was saying on Sunday, just commenting, you know, to be happy because everything is just going the way you want it is not really to be happy, that's to be pleased. To be happy is something quite else. If nothing is troubling you, and therefore you're happy, that's just, you know, you you see what I mean? It's quite different. And if one has relatively good karma, or just is in a karmic cycle, an astrologically auspicious period, you, you kind of get the impression that you really have your act together until something happens. It's nice to be humble. I'm not saying you should anticipate and be afraid, but it's always nice to be humble and to pay attention, Um, to be good merely because it's your habit to be good, to be cheerful merely because you get your way all the time. You know, am I really, do I really have self-mastery or am I just enjoying my good karma? Don't no, be paranoid, but always be trying to expand yourself and really take even what you're enjoying and offer it back instead of just thinking, now I finally got it together and this wave is going to stay up and never go down. <laughs> That's what happens, and then you're surprised when it goes down. Whoa, look at that. There it is, it went down. Swami says in so many places, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter to me whether I suffer or not. Suffering and happiness are just the same. I mean, he, he says in many, many places, it doesn't matter if I'm suffering. And I, I've really thought about that a lot because it matters a lot to me when I'm suffering. And I've been just really trying to tune in. How could it not matter? It's like even my own mind says, how can it not matter that I'm suffering? And every so often I get this little tiny glimpse of, of having your consciousness be big enough that the fact that this part of it is suffering is not right here. Swami was saying that in something I was reading. Uh, He was talking about being on the bus and having this feeling that there was this huge, monstrous thing running across the building just to the, you know, that they were driving by. And it was a fly moving across the window. But peripherally, it, it was so close to him, it just looked massive. And he kind of was looking through the window at the, building. And he just said very simply, that's how we relate to our own experiences. They seem massive to us. And it's not like it's any different than it actually is. It's just how close we are to it. And how close we are to it in time. Because, of course, the tragedy of two decades ago is not the same as the tragedy of two minutes ago, which is one thing. The tragedy of five incarnations ago we don't even know about anymore, although sometimes when we begin to suffer, we suffer out of proportion to the present cause, and one has a suspicion that one has fallen into some karmic abyss, you know really, you just like your your unhappiness or your resentment or whatever your your jealousy, your resentment, your pain is just out of proportion to what's happened, but it's not it's not unreal to you it it just it's hard to tie it to what happened, but the experience you're having is real. But it's all about perspective. So I presume, this, when Swami was miserable in his health and I asked him, how are you? Compared to eternity, I'm just fine. So, in the movie of my life, this is gonna be a 30-second scene. Is different than, this is only gonna last two and a half years. Uh, it's just, I, I don't have an answer for it, but I've been contemplating it a lot because uh, just, it's an important thought to contemplate. You just don't want to get caught out. You don't want, you don't, especially you don't want to think that you have nothing more to learn. It's really dangerous. Yeah, 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 that's easy. It's not so hard to think I have nothing more to learn. Yeah, let's go there. You're right, now that you pointed out just like that, No danger check that one off my list, not afraid of that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everybody ready? Okay, number 350. By recognition of the distinction between satwa, the mind, in its pure state, without... Is this a new one? Okay. Without craving, attraction, or attachment, and the self, one attains supremacy over all states of consciousness, and thereby becomes both... Omnipotent and omniscient. Well, I'm glad we got both of them. The distinction between the mind and its pure state, in its pure state, is it doesn't crave anything, is not attracted to anything, is not attached to anything. And the Supreme Self. Okay, so one can tell. One attains supremacy over all states of consciousness. Achieving oneness with God is not comparable to climbing a long, steep ladder. Once one overcomes one's own personal limitations, there is nothing more to conquer. We are as close to God, even now, as we'll ever be. Swami was saying, once you attain this, these high states of consciousness, Swami said, it's all so obvious. <laughs> I love the way he put that. It's just so obvious. You can't figure out why it was so hard to see before. I don't know, you know, what do you think about things like that? You believe him, and it's very promising. Um, You know, the fact that we're only removing obstacles, we're not trying to accomplish anything, is a helpful thought because it, it keeps turning your attention back inward, and you realize that if I just keep working on my attitudes and my responses to life, that's really all that I have to do. It's really all, in other words, it's completely within my control. I don't have to make anybody in this world do anything. And I don't have to, like, become something I'm not already. I just have to wake up. Mm. That's why Master said, how is everyone today awake and ready? How feels everyone awake and ready? Just, there we are. I love these teachings. I can't always understand them, but I do love them. Me, there was another point. that me see if I can remember what it was. No, I can't. Okay. So... Let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Number 351. By non-attachment even to the cities, the various powers, the seed of bondage is destroyed and supreme freedom is obtained. Same thing. Once our bondage to ego is finally and completely snapped, there is nothing more to be attained. There are no outer kingdoms to conquer. We are supremely free. I was remembering when... uh, uh, it. When Swamiji was uh, being questioned in court, when we were right through all those 12 years of litigation, and especially the second lawsuit, which was such a personal attack, he just had a, a, a policy which was, I'm not going to defend myself. I mean, it was a most inconvenient policy for being in court. He was really pretty much a terrible witness, because he just wouldn't defend himself. And that didn't mean he wouldn't answer the questions. He accepted the fact that he a- had to answer the questions He told us, quite frankly, that if it had been only him, and it wasn't master's work, and it wasn't the lives of all the hundreds of people who had depended on the continuation of that work, he would have simply taken a position of non-cooperation. Because the concept of defending himself was was, uh, an anathema to him. The ego, I'm not here to defend my ego. Because that's what you're defending. People are talking about your behavior, your attitudes, what did you do? And in a court of law, because it's adversarial, you have to counter. They're accusing and you have to counter. And Swami's long-standing philosophy of life was not to. Whatever position or opinion you want to hold, it was a matter of principle to him not to defend. Because I am what I am before my conscience and God... And what society, people, the newspapers, lawyers, the courts, the audience, whatever they think, what difference does it make? I am what I am. And, you know, we defend ourselves on a very steady basis. He has in the book, Saw to Beware. When people misunderstand you, don't explain. <laughs> Just leave it. Let them think what they want. And, and, you know, when people attack you, don't defend yourself. Just let it stand. It's very, it's easy to read but it's such an instinctive response, isn't it? To just sort of let it, let it be there. Um, just um, our, when our bondage to ego is finally and completely snapped. And we come to a certain point where we recognize the jeopardy we're putting ourselves in even by behaving in what everyone else would consider to be a perfectly normal way. Of course you would do that. But it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to just perpetuate the same story... That's one thing. If your goal is really to just break forever the bondage to this and not look to the world around us for anything, but only to true happiness within. This is not easy, but it, it doesn't hurt to know um, the, our own potential. As we've talked about several times, when it's the right thing for us, it will be perfectly natural. We can't assume these things as an affectation. If you're really just suppressing your anger and your frustration, that's not the same as transcending it. It's far better to be authentic in our response. Swami said about something, you have if you have a stomach ache, you feel it, and if you have a heartache, you have to feel it too. You can't just say I shouldn't have it. But when you really we we are really ready, then we look at the whole thing differently. That's where the saints say, it's so obvious. Why were you always feeding and caring for something that was never you, your body and your ego? Huh. Let's take a, a short break. We may set a record for a number of sutras. No, we're not. We're not really getting going. We're getting
2: close to the end of chapter three.
0: We are, but God knows whether we'll make it or not. Okay. Okay. Um, now we are in sutra number 352. The yogi should neither accept nor preen himself over the praise or admiration of even celestial beings as there is always a danger of falling back into what is undesirable, which is to say ego consciousness. It's interesting, you know, just putting that in there. Don't get a swelled head, great yogi. My guru used to say and wrote in a poem to his guru in whispers from eternity, If all the gods protect me behind the parapets of their blessings, yet I receive not thy benediction. I am an orphan left to pine spiritually in the ruins of thy displeasure. What a beautiful poem. Even the astral gods are not perfect. They still have some ego bondage to sever. But I have known enlightened beings here on earth also who have given me advice that conflicted with what my guru had said to me, had told me, I remained firm in my obedience and loyalty to him. Many are even the true paths to God. I have chosen mine. That's really beautiful, isn't it? Wow. So, just in other words, don't get distracted from your single path. I mean, the sutra itself doesn't mention the guru, but what because Swamiji talks about the guru, he must have a picture in his mind of what this would look like. You know, that we suddenly, everybody thinks you're wonderful and you stop listening. It's interesting how in Autobiography of a Yogi, when Master finally goes back to see Sri Yukteswar, and Master chooses to describe that meeting by quoting from the diary of Richard Wright, and how Richard Wright is just so amazed to see Master, who has been obviously the Satguru and the supreme authority in all circumstance, suddenly he's just his own Master's disciple. Just a complete... Because he'd never seen Master um, reverence and uh, submit himself to someone like that. So that's why Master himself couldn't describe it. It had to be described by Richard Wright. But you could see how one having attained a certain reality, because the stories are full of, Swami himself talks about having reached a very advanced state of consciousness and then having an argument with his guru. What would cause you to have an argument with your guru? Well, somehow your head gets kind of puffed up, doesn't it? And all of a sudden you think you know more than your guru does in this point. Think of the story of Judas and Jesus. Judas trying to push Jesus to be different than he was Why was not this ointment sold and the money given to the poor when Mary Magdalene came in and wasted it all on Jesus? I mean, where is Judas coming from? Somehow or another, he got himself a little puffed up. And we we get puffed up when something reinforces that. So we're having visions of astral beings who are telling us we're really swell. I don't know where it comes from, but one place or another. So the fact that uh, Swamiji turns this immediately to obedience and humility before your guru and single-minded devotion to your guru, there's a warning in here that we really need to hear. It's very important. Uh, just, I remembered, even the astral gods are not perfect. They still have some ego bondage to sever. In some context, or another, Swami was quoting masters, saying, maybe it's in conversations, that the gods, you know, all the, that panoply of gods, Indra, Agni, all those gods, he said they are positions, that are held by different souls, like the King of England. There's always a King of England, but it's not always the same soul that's the King of England. So there is always an Indra, but a person will hold it for as long as it's karmically appropriate, and then they'll move on, and then somebody else will be Indra. You know, because a lot of things that are myths are not really myths that seem to be myths. What are you supposed to do with it? Even the astral gods are not perfect. So there's astral gods. We start there. And then they're ego beings. Devas, angels. It's everything. Everything in creation is on a spectrum between delusion and absolute final freedom. So all of these different beings who are more elevated are not necessarily free. Swamiji made the reference of... uh, uh, he was talking about the Mormon religion um, where whoever he, was the founder of that, he received it from an angel is how he put it. And Swami said, you know, a master doesn't receive it from an angel. Whether he, whether he actually did receive it even from an angel is a whole other conversation. But even that statement, I received it from an angel, master is God conscious and it's a he receives it directly. So, Even that is a lesser revelation than self-realization. And the angel gives it to you for what reasons? Who knows? Because they're not free. And Swami tells that interesting story. I've told it several times, but it's relevant here. Findhorn community in Scotland uh, in the 70s was so, in the early 80s, was so, It's just this huge phenomenon because of their at that time, really unique and phenomenal cooperation with the nature spirits. And the nature spirits was a huge part of what they were doing. They had Eileen Caddy there and others who were very, very tuned into these things. And, you know, there's the famous picture of the giant cauliflower growing in the snow because the nature devas were just so keen on doing nifty things with these people. And then Swamiji went there to, to visit for a conference. And he was there. and he, I mean, he enjoyed many things about it. He was, he was friends with Peter Caddy. And uh, Swamiji said he had a very difficult time speaking there and he felt that, like that there was a strong force opposing his presence. He said they did, it, the force didn't mind when he sang, but it objected strenuously when he tried to teach Master's teachings. And he felt that it was the nature spirits because they had gotten themselves into a pretty pretty good spot here where people thought they were really the bee's knees, so to speak. They were the, the top of the food chain, and Swami's coming in with Master's teachings, which just way transcended them, and he, they didn't really want him to speak there. And he said that oppressive force stayed the whole time they were there, and then when they left, he said when they were about ten miles away, it finally lifted. But that was his interpretation of it, because the devas have egos, you know, they're just devas. They're not, they're not God-realized masters. It's their job is to take care of the cauliflowers and, you know, all of that. It's, it's an assignment. And they, they carry it out. But imagine, you know, the whole place is and they're writing books about you and everybody thinks you're really hot stuff and somebody's going to come in and wipe you out or at least make you look smaller. Isn't that fun? You know, I, when Swami would say things like that, I know him well enough that he wouldn't say it unless he felt it was really true.
2: Yes, And so in this context, devas are astral beings?
0: Devas are astral beings. Are they a separate line of development? Are they just angelic beings who are really interested in nature? Are they more advanced than highly advanced people? Who knows? It's all just a mystery to me. In in the Autobiography of the Yogi, The Resurrection of Sri Yukteswar, he describes mermaids, gnomes, fairies. And, And then I asked Swamiji... So, and I, every time I say this, it's the mermaid one that gets me. That thought that we have to be everything before we're liberated. Like, do we do a whole cycle as mermaids? It's just like so out there for me, but it's right there in the book, mermaids. And Swami's interesting answer was separate lines of development. Which means what? There's a mermaid avatar? I don't know. And I just, it's... I've said a lot since we've got into this section of the book, it's a weird world. That's right in AY. I read that maybe 15 times before it, it finally, I finally actually noticed that. Yes. So about the separate lines of development, does uh-huh. that mean if we have a very strong desire to be a mermaid, we can't actually fulfill that by reincarnating as one? Because it's a separate line? That would seem odd. I'm going he... to quote Swami on that. And this is what Swami said to a similar question to me. <laughs> Just like I have, I'm the foggiest idea. And Swami also said in that context, a few things will have to wait to be solved later. Like Master himself in 1948 when he had that um, samadhi in which people could hear both sides of his conversation with Divine Mother. Master said, oh, Mother, that's how you do it. <laughs> I love that. She's taking him around the cosmos. Oh, that's how you do it. It's a weird world. Fascinating, yes. But what, the point here is and, this is, and this is an important point, we can respect, and we should respect, devas, angels, fairies, gnomes, mermaids, and, and acknowledge their reality and participate with them, but merely because they have powers and orientations and responsibilities different than ours, that does not mean immediately we should fall into a state of awesome worship of them. We should just take things as they are and experience them for what they are. I mean, those nature devas, you know, if we're going to grow food, we need to be their friends. We all need to work together. We need to really respect their responsibilities. We need to be grateful for what they give. But just like we shouldn't be exaggerated with each other, we shouldn't be exaggerated with them either. You know why? Because it's not good for them. You know, flattery and praise and uh, adulation, it, it doesn't take anybody anywhere. So you be appropriately grateful, appropriately respectful, appropriately responsive, but don't be excessive. It's not—it's just not dignified and it's not appropriate. It doesn't help anybody. Yeah, I mean, the flatterer is never anybody's real friend.
2: I guess the, you kind of touched on the comment I was going to make was um, <clears throat> of all the... I mean, there are many, many, many things you know spiritual quote just subjects that people can talk about and people can get enamored of and and i just find it so um wonderful that our conversation ananda master swami our conversation is about self-realization
0: right always and right.
2: and that's just it and i you know well,
0: that's the thank you god but we've been through all of it i mean To me, anything that expands people's sense of the possible is helpful. So just the mere thought that there is such a thing as a nature, Deva, can be a very big step for someone. Wow, the material world isn't all there is. There's many levels. I'm part of a greater reality. There are conscious beings that aren't the same as me who are helping me. So everything is directional. I mean, with Swamiji, what I always watched, he would just kind of feel where a person was, and then he would help them move forward from that spot. And he was very uh, comfortable with wherever they were. That was just where the conversation started tonight. He was very comfortable with wherever they were because wherever you are is where you are. You can't help it. It's where you are. And so the only thing that matters is which way you're facing and whether or not you're moving in the upward direction or whether you're burrowing back into the mud. And everybody's responsibility to everybody else is to try to help us get out of the mud but you have to you can't move except from where you're standing and I, somehow I learned that with my parents in the last years of their life that was a, a huge learning for me oh there's nothing wrong with this karma my mother has parkinson's my father's mind is not working so well you know it was a it was a tough story there and I I was just freaking out is the you know to use the to use a term of art here just freaking out over the whole thing and then one day i thought why are you freaking out it's just their karma you know they've spent incarnations literally for for millions of incarnations they've been working up to this moment for all that it's going to give them why are you freaking out and also what is the option it's like oh i think right now they should completely change all those incarnations and have a different result because I don't, I'm don't. i not liking this. That's called the revolt. That's the second stage of the soul's long journey in which instead of dealing with things as they are, it declares how it wants things to be. And then it spends a lot of time beating its head against a stone wall, thinking that that stone wall is going to change. And it doesn't, but... Uh, that one is a really sneaky one. It just really sneaks into you and you finally realize that, yeah, I'm in the second stage. I'm in the revolt. It's, very, it's not, not easy to get out of that. The, the, the state of, you know, just somewhere, somehow, someplace, it's got to be different than this. And it isn't. And with my parents, I got it from their side. You know, myself is something else. But I got it from their side oh, I just have to help them go forward. Same, same deal. And the other part of it, which was very, very important, it didn't feel to them like it felt to me because it was familiar. It was theirs. It belonged to them. They had spent millions of incarnations working up to that point and everything about them resonated with their karmic moment. Just exactly, it resonated. So when some soul is just beginning to discover nature, devas, it really probably isn't the time to talk to them about self-realization. You just talk to them about nature, David. Think how much it, they say Master could converse with anyone on any subject. Because he looked for what they were interested in. Just like you're dealing with a child, you don't talk to the child about, you know, calculus. You talk to the child about, oh, that's those beautiful blocks. Did you build that all yourself? Wow, what if you put this one on top of that one? And I found this... Uh, um, there's just a little a note about a conversation with Swami and he was having it with one of the children in our community and the child was actually asking Swami some question about how he should relate to the other children and I, what the notes that I wrote. I don't remember the conversation. I just have the notes that I was so struck by how seriously Swami just answered the child. He was about, about maybe 10. You know, they had a, a peer conversation it was because that was the he was standing at. He was ten, so it was in the context of being ten. So Swami spoke to him in the context of being ten. But but, but what struck me is it was no less important, no less serious, um, no less worthy of Swami's entire attention than any other soul he'd ever met. Because that's where he is. That's what you do. You know, <laughs> we all suffer a lot because we don't do that very well. We always want things to be different than they are. This is the second stage of the soul's long journey. We are not, we're not in the quest. We're not actually trying to understand what's supposed to happen. We're still really, really busy trying to insist that it should be our way. I, I'm guilty of this. like, in the, I'm the Academy Award winner of trying to force my will on the world. So believe me, when I talk about this, she knows whereof she speaks. That doesn't mean I'm out of it, but you know, I'm watching it. It's quite impressive. I mean, it's so insidious. So what Swami wrote into the festival, especially in that the bird story, I always find, you know, people at the beginning, this is so many years ago, some of you don't remember, some of you do, there was a lot of, like, we're going to listen to the story of that bird every week. You know, as the bird, you know, is like, Is something new ever going to happen here? Or is that bird just going to go through those same stages every time? It's like he can have new adventures or something. I found very old notes actually where Swami actually considered having a series of different stories. But eventually we just settle down with the bird and we just watch it struggle through eons of time every time until it learns its lesson. But I'll be darned, almost, not all the time, but much of the time when I'm quoting from the festival, I'm quoting right from that story. Because that soul's long journey is, here we are, we're all in the same, and some of us are not even flying business class, we're back in the tour seats, you know, we're just all in the same long journey. And that revolt is a really interesting one. Very good. The shift from, why are you doing this to me, God? Why are you doing it to them, God? Why don't you answer my prayer? Why don't you change this to, why don't you answer my prayer? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this to me? Same words, but everything shifts at that point. That's the quest. You still don't know, but you're no longer trying to force your will. You're trying to understand how to harmonize your will with the divine. So that's the end of our story. Unless someone has something to say, but even if you do, probably save it for next week. So we went from 347 to 352. Perhaps not a record, but we're still moving right along.